Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 10 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. All right. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. You can find that at digitalbitspr.com. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada. And you can find his firm online at duntroonllp.law. If you enjoy the podcast, we mention this all the time, please share it with a friend. It means a lot to us. It's one of the only ways we have to get word out about the show. Uh, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So we were we are on social media everywhere. And the uh, account name is PR Law Podcast. So that's Facebook.com slash PR Law Podcast, Twitter.com slash PR Law Podcast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can support us on Patreon as well. That would mean a lot. You can find that on our website, PRLawPodcast.com, and you can click support the show. And lastly, we are on YouTube. So if you prefer to listen that way, you can check us out there. And we're also always happy to take questions on the show. Uh, Ewan and I will do our best to, to try and answer those. And you can just tag us on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. We have all kinds of stuff to talk about today. And we have our first guest coming up on the show in a bit. But Ewan, uh, what's happening with you? Well, it's another uh, gorgeous summer day here in Toronto, Cameron. Um, big, big news for us. This, well, big news for me and any other parent in the province of Ontario, I suppose. Um, child care centers reopened officially on Friday. Now, I say that with a, well, I say that with sort of a, a gargantuan asterisk attached because uh, the government effectively came out three days prior and said, oh, by the way, childcare centers, as of uh, Friday, you can all reopen. Um, but as far as I can tell, at least from the director of our childcare center, uh, nobody was really provided any sort of notice or, or any consultation from, from, from what, I can, what, I, what I understand. So none of the childcare centers are really in any sort of position to open. So as to when my, my three-year-old will have an opportunity to go back and see some other children. And um, my wife and I will have an, a, a chance to finally get back in our offices. I, I don't know, but uh, exciting news nonetheless. What's what's going on your end? So you're you're still getting cases in Toronto, right? I haven't seen any numbers, but but I heard recently that, that Toronto is still kind of a hotspot. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we've um, they, they've sort of moved on to a stage two in the rest of the province, which is you know, consistent with more and more things opening up. Uh, Toronto has been one of the excluded areas that remains in sort of stage one. We're still, uh, relatively speaking, on lockdown. They, the government also announced this week that they're going, they've, they've introduced the, the bubbling, the social bubbling, so we can now have up to 10 people within our particular bubble. So, um, you know, we had a friend come over on the weekend and I was able to give her a give her a hug and have her in our, in our home. And that Changing was the first the person that has stepped inside our home, um, that I've had any physical contact with, um, in, I've, I don't know. I mean, I guess going all the way back to, to the beginning of March. 
Well, I hope you've hugged your daughter and your wife and there was some physical contact. (laughs) Well, yes, I'm talking about anybody outside of my home. So, but it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a a really exciting moment. This is sort of a, a close friend of, of mine, of my, of my wife's, of our daughters. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a big moment getting to have someone physically step into your home for the first time in, in months and, and, you know, have a hug. It, it, um, it was, it was really, it was a big deal, you know? All right. Exciting times. Let's have a quick check of the COVID numbers here. Looking uh, sort of around the world and, and after Ewan's update there in Toronto. So worldwide, we're up to 7.78 million cases and 430,000 deaths, which is really remarkable. I think it looks like we may hit that half a million deaths number, which would be uh, a very a very sad milestone. Uh, in the U.S., they're up to 2 million cases overall. They've had 115,000 deaths there. In Hong Kong, we've uh, we've hit 1,110 cases. So, I mean, we've had another good week. On June 9th, 10th, 11th, and 14th uh, last week, zero new cases on all of those days. Uh, we had one case on the 12th and one on the 13th. Um, so we're still, we have not had many cases overall, and it's been, it's been quite good. Um, the good news out of all of that is that the social distancing rules that we did have in place here, or we still have in place, uh, no one's really referred to it as a bubble here like you did, Ewan, but it's, uh, it was eight people, a, a gathering of eight people. Uh, any more than that um, was, was not allowed. So that may be extended uh, later on this month. And then uh, Ocean Park, which is one of the really big uh, theme parks in Hong Kong, it opened up this weekend. Uh, the Book Fair, which is always a huge event, it's the largest in Asia every year. It will happen uh, in next month. So these are all. This is all good news, um, even though it's not going to be quite the same. So Ocean Park is only up to. It's only. The, the maximum number of people is about twenty five percent of overall capacity, and then the Book Fair obviously is is not going to be uh, as big as last year either. Um, but one of the things that we wanted to talk about today, and we have a guest on the show for the first time, is uh, there was some big news that, in, that was in Hong Kong, but also uh, globally, because it does affect airlines globally. And that was a Hong Kong government bailout of Cathay Pacific Airways. Uh, so I had an alert to my phone when I woke up saying that Cathay was suspending trading of its shares. So we knew a big announcement uh, was coming, and then it became clear that the government was going to to uh, pour 3.5 billion U.S. dollars into the airline uh, and take a 6.08 percent stake. So to talk about that, uh, we welcome to the show Danny Lee, who is uh, one of the senior reporters at the South China Morning Post, uh, the leading global newspaper that covers Hong Kong uh, and China. Danny, welcome to the show. Hi, folks. Good to hear from you. Yeah, great. Uh, we actually worked with Danny years ago, so it's uh, it's great to reconnect with him. Um, what happened, Danny, with this Cathay Pacific bailout? Can you kind of walk us through how this came about? Yeah, Cathay, Cathay Pacific, it has been struggling under the weight of COVID. Uh, it has 240-odd planes, and most of its passenger planes, so a good number of them, about 200 of them, have essentially been grounded for uh three to four months now they have been suffering uh through the collapse in passenger numbers because nobody wants to fly uh their daily passenger numbers collapsed by 99 percent and in that effect when you're making no money essentially on air tickets then uh your key source of revenue dries up uh so uh for a couple of months now it has been struggling uh carrying on by uh 
running cargo flights, but essentially it has not been making money over a two to three month period and it still has to pay staff. It still has to run its operations. Now, Cathay is such a big uh, influence on Hong Kong. Uh, it's been around for, what, 70 years. So it's a it's a fairly well-established company through uh, the many, many years and decades. And it's very synonymous with Hong Kong. It's grown hand-in-hand hand with Hong Kong. Um, but you know, this crisis uh, of COVID has essentially, uh, has essentially uh, almost brought it to its knees. Um, so on Monday... Uh, there was uh, some some developments that we had heard of. And by Tuesday, when we expected the shares to be suspended, we knew things were happening. And uh, as we were able to confirm, uh, Cathay uh, received a fairly unexpected uh, rescue package from the government. Now, it's almost unheard of for the government to uh, rescue a private company. But given the, the seriousness of the situation, uh, Cathay went to the government for help a couple of months ago and they agreed a package of, in total, uh, 3.5 billion. Cathay will uh, get 5 billion uh, in terms of restructuring, 5 billion US dollars in terms of to restructure its finances. And that will see it through the crisis of COVID, hopefully. It seems to be um, enough, more than enough money. Uh, Cathay Pacific's chairman, uh, Patrick Healy, said uh, on Tuesday that last week that it was very close to collapse. It had no other options except for uh, this refinancing package, most of it uh, put forward by the government of Hong Kong. So, yeah, it's a fairly unexpected, uh, in many senses, a surprise, but um, the only option, given most governments are doing this, uh, bailing out airlines. And uh, Cathay is probably quite late to the party on, on this. The, in terms of trying to look at its options, its how much money it's got left, how much money it's going to burn through over the next couple of months. Um, it's quite late to the party in terms of raising significant amounts of money compared to other airlines around the world. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned in there that it's rare for the Hong Kong government to sort of step in and take an ownership stake in a, in a company like this. And that's what really caught my eye as well, um, because it, it isn't something. I mean, the Hong Kong government is really hands off, as, as everyone knows. And so like why why this time why Cathay why was it so important and what what would I mean what would have happened if we if we lost Cathay Pacific? Well, if we lost Cathay, it would mean uh, in normal times it's responsible for half of the uh, passengers coming in and out of Hong Kong. It carries two fifths of all the cargo that comes through Hong Kong. So Hong Kong, in very in very many senses, is so reliant on Cathay to keep its planes up in the air. It's so important to the movement of people, to the movement of, of trade flows. So in terms of the ecosystem within aviation, and then you look at another aspect in terms of the economy and the city's uh, development as a whole, Cathay's pretty much at the center of that. It underpins the aviation sector and it plays a huge role in the economy. So without Cathay, there'd be very few options for the economy to tick over, particularly during this crisis. Uh, with cargo planes still flying that Cathay operates. Essentially, there'll be almost no passenger flights out of Hong Kong. There are still a few, but Cathay is still responsible for for the most of them, the ones which are still operating at the moment. So within that, within the uh, the grand scheme of things, Cathay is pretty much at the centre of, of things. And the government felt that it could not let Cathay collapse. It needed to provide something in order 
for Cafe to keep on running, not just for the next couple of months, but during this COVID crisis, which we still don't know how much longer this crisis will go on for. We are starting to see signs of a recovery in Asia, but again, around the world, uh, Europe and in North America, we still see many, many issues. And without borders being open, very few people will be able to fly, very few planes will be able to come and go because essentially it's very difficult for people to move without uh, the risk of uh, getting quarantined or catching COVID. Right, right. And it's sort of a double whammy too, because I mean, Cathay was hit really hard last year because of the protests in Hong Kong. And of course that resulted in the, in the chairman of, of Swire and, uh, and also the CEO of Cathay kind of pushed aside as a result of, uh, as a result of those protests. So, I mean, I know Cathay's had a, had a, had a really tough time and I guess, I mean, I don't know if you know this, Danny, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but like I've always said to people, Hong Kong is like a country in a sense, because if you're going somewhere else, you have to cross a border. There's no way to go to another city or another province or country or another province rather, um, you know, with, without crossing this international boundary. So it makes, you know, flights necessary and going through these borders necessary basically for, for everything. And my sense is that the, the air, air travel market is picking up somewhat in mainland China. And I guess that would be one, one reason for that. Um, but can you talk to that a little bit and just like the, the state of airlines globally, because I know the bailout of Cathay, um, that's one airline here, but it's certainly not the only airline, as you mentioned, this is, there's, this is happening in a lot of places because airlines are facing really, really tough times. Right. Cathay was one of the last, uh, one of the, the latest ones to be bailed out. I mean, we've seen, uh, dozens and dozens of airlines be rescued big and small so Cathay is not the exception to this and I think one of the figures that has come out more recently according to uh, the industry that 123 billion has been poured into airlines to or to help rescue them whether it be through direct bailouts or through elements of cost savings so uh, so at the moment we are seeing uh, the industry uh, pretty much on its knees but where Asia was first and worst hit by the crisis initially, it is now starting to see small pockets of demand, particularly in domestic flying, where in China, that's a big market. Uh, I mean, China is supposed to be going from the second to the world's biggest air travel market before COVID hit. Uh, The domestic market is enormous and enormously profitable for mainland Chinese airlines. And, And that element where there are no uh, borders or boundaries per se, that is where uh, a lot more flight activity is is going on at the moment. Uh, we are seeing some green shoots in other parts of Asia where Asia has generally been able to contain the virus and keep things under control. You mentioned earlier on in your show, you talked about how Hong Kong had a pretty good uh, week again. Many parts of Asia have seen uh, a good week. New Zealand have, uh, in fact, uh, got no more active cases of COVID. So I think they're one of the first in the world. I think Macau also has almost zero, close to zero cases, active cases. So we do see in Asia, there is a a, a momentum, but there is still fear of uh, COVID cases reemerging and outbreaks, particularly in, in, in the Chinese capital, Beijing. Uh, we see a quite a serious uh, second outbreak uh, in uh, stemming from a food market, which the authorities are responding to. However, uh, it's not really having an impact, uh, say, on aviation at the moment because the authorities are responding to it. But 
still in Asia, there is some hope that air travel demand will come back uh, a little bit quicker, particularly in the domestic market. But hopefully with the the the, the formation of travel bubbles or air bridges, if you were, where countries will agree with other countries that it is safe for their, uh, their people to come to and from without needing quarantine or limited quarantine, more testing in order to allow people to come to and fro. So, so there is some hope that uh, more elements of air travel will pick up through the rest of this year and into uh, early next year where other parts may not uh, do so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fingers crossed. I mean, we're seeing how, how quickly, um, you know, things can change. You know, there can be low numbers of cases or no cases for a long time. And then suddenly there's a cluster or an outbreak somewhere. Um, so it can change quickly. Ewan, do you want to hop in on this uh, yeah. at all with regard to aviation? Go ahead. Yeah, Danny, I, I had a question for you. I mean, one of the, one of the issues that's been kind of at the forefront around the airlines in North America has been individual airline policies with regard to uh, ticket refunds. There's been a lot of controversy around this because, of course, passengers who had purchased tickets that um, for flights that inevitably were canceled as a result of COVID um, on a policy-by-policy basis, some airlines have been very, very reluctant to provide full refunds. And, and that certainly resulted in uh, a lot and will continue to result in a lot of litigation here in North America. I was just curious, you know, generally speaking in, in Asia, what, what's the policy been with, with airlines in terms of refunding ticket prices? Have they been, have they been reluctant to do that? The airlines have been in Asia have been uh, doing their part to give refunds back. They've clearly uh, been very slow, like most airlines, the, the huge volume of people trying to get their money back. But at the same time, airlines have a balancing act of trying to make sure they manage their cash flow. The the huge number of, of, of refunds they've had to deal with in terms of cash volume, if they gave it all out in one go, they I think airlines would stop operating. They'll go bankrupt, frankly, because um, airlines have taken a significant amount of money um, in advance for what they assumed would go towards their flying program through 2020 and until COVID hit, all things looked very well. So the, the airlines have done all right, but again, the airlines are f- feeling the strain and you, know, you see one or two airlines, I'm not going to name names here because they'll probably try and get me involved in litigation. They have tried to slow things down and offered things such as vouchers. Vouchers emerged fairly early on and it's been embraced because airlines get to keep the money. Uh, they get to encourage people to fly again in future and they hope that by uh, not having to give the refund it just will help their cash position a little bit more and we do see some airlines trying to encourage people to take vouchers uh, instead of refunds but giving them the incentive of using a voucher which has 10 to 20 percent more value than uh, the ticket price they originally paid for in order for them to be incentivized to uh, not take a refund. So there is, there is some, uh, there is better behavior, I would say, in Asia overall, um, because I think they're much more conscious about their brand and brand positioning, and then governments being more involved with the airlines here in the region. So unlike in Europe and in, in, in the US in particular, where there have been a lot of heat, a lot of heat from customers threatening to sue, using other methods to get their money back. I think in Asia, the situation is much better. I'm, I guess I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Danny, because this isn't really necessarily an aviation specific question. And, and Cam, I guess you could probably jump in on this too. Um, do you see 
the decision of, of you know the Hong Kong government getting involved and providing a bailout as precedent setting in any way? Do you think that there will be other other industries that will now come forward and say, well, hey, you know, you stepped in and you helped Cathay Pacific. Can you help in uh, step in and help us as well? I think from the government's point of view, they think there is not another company with such significance who faces such trouble who would come forward and say, hey, Hong Kong government, I need help. With the other measures that the Hong Kong government have put in place to uh, keep the economy going, to save companies more broad-based, they would hope that the measures are enough. Companies, again, have to do their bit to ensure that they are uh, well managed through the crisis. But for a company like Cathay, it was a special one-off case uh, in the government's view, given its importance and given how much it affects the economy. So I, I don't necessarily think it's a precedence, but there is clearly some eyebrow, eyebrows that are being raised where you look at seeing, oh, the government has done this. Uh, what does this mean in future? Could it intervene in other companies uh, in such a way? I, I don't think that will be the case from the government's point of view. Uh, again, it has set, uh, let's say, a model of what could happen in future if uh, other companies get into trouble. Okay, Danny, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really, uh, really great to have you on, on the show and talk about this because it was big news locally and it was also in the news around the world this week. And uh, we hope to have you on again the next time something like this pops up. And I know you're, uh, you actually cover a lot of different things, so we could have you on for, for all sorts of stuff. So thanks, Danny, for, for joining us. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Danny. All right. That's Danny Lee from the South China Morning Post, uh, their renowned aviation editor. And we did, uh, we did work with Danny years ago, you and I, when we had a, uh, a website called the Nanfeng. I think some of our listeners, at least on this side of the world, may be familiar or have heard of it. Um, but but uh, Danny was uh, one of our key reporters there. I remember you and he was uh, very active covering the typhoons, if I recall. Yes, uh, that's right. Out there, you know, tracking uh, the typhoon all night long as it ripped apart Shenzhen and Guangzhou and other, other places like that in uh, southern China. All right. Um, so, you and I want to get into a couple of other things here because we do have uh, have a lot to talk about um, today, and um, one of them just quickly uh, on the Danny mentioned it during his 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 quick visit with us, which is the outbreak of the coronavirus at the wet market in Beijing. Um, this is another interesting case. It, the, the, there were a number of uh, infections from here, and the market has been shut down. Parts of Beijing have been kind of blocked off, uh, and schools that were set to open are now closed again. And I think this is such a good example of. Basically, uh, you know uh, how the how the virus can come back very quickly, right? When we think we're, we we've gotten a really good good handle on it, so uh, I think this sort of thing could could happen in other other parts of the world as well. Um, and then the other item is sort of what's going on with the U.S. and uh, you know there is a, a lot happening in with the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, so I want to get a, a quick update uh, from a U.S. radio station. This is KFI AM six forty in Minneapolis. Protesters have taken to the streets for a third straight weekend in Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota over the death of George Floyd in police custody. If Floyd don't get it, shut it down. If Floyd don't get it, shut it down. If Floyd don't get it, Minneapolis City Council has unanimously passed a resolution to begin dismantling the police department and transforming the public safety system. 
So you can see there's still uh, still protests happening uh, going into, I believe, their third week now. Um, Ewan, how, how does it look from your, your vantage point there in uh, North America? Well, I mean, the, the protests have, have certainly spread here now as well. Um, we've had large-scale protests across the country, um, a, a number here in, here in Toronto. Um, probably one of the one of the most prominent uh, protests was one that involved the prime minister and the the prime minister um, took a knee during during the one of the Black Lives Matters protests and obviously that um, got a great deal of press both both for and against um, you know and something I, I wanted to talk about I, I was thinking later in the show towards the end a, a great article I read by Marie Hennen who is a prominent, if not the most prominent, uh, criminal lawyer in Canada who wrote um, a rather scathing op-ed in the in in the Globe and Mail about this and about our Prime Minister taking a knee and um, saying how you know hey that's a that's a great start, but you know you're the Prime Minister and you're in a position to be able to do a lot more than just take a knee. Um, and she she commented extensively on. A number of the companies and politicians that have effectively been paying lip service to the cause, you know, coming out with prominent statements and tweets saying, you know, we support the movement, but then not really doing anything above and beyond that. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of talk politically in terms of, well, what should the government do? And there's been discussion around defund the police here in Canada as well. And one of the things that, um, you know, Marie Hennan addressed in her article is that, you know, the the government is speaking as if we don't know what we can do here, or there hasn't been discussion around these issues. And she talked about, you know, two prominent commissions in Canada um, dealing specifically with, with this issue and pres- providing a, a whole series of, of um, legislative recourse that can be introduced at the federal level to address these issues. But no one has done anything. Um, you know, one of the prominent issues she talks about is the mandatory minimum sentencing in in Canada, um, something that that uh, Trudeau's liberal government um, campaigned to remove. It was introduced by the, the you know, the previous Harper conservatives. Um, and it's still it's still on the books, stuff like this. And she you know, she also commented. And I thought this was interesting as well. She talked about um, some of the pushback against the Black Lives Matter movement where. Um, you know, some of the critics have said, well, look, the reality is, is if we look at the statistics, there are still more whites being killed by police than blacks. And, you know, I, Marie Hennan talks about this in, in terms of how it's just completely the wrong, the wrong approach. You know, she's saying and in, in, in her argument is it's, it's, it's a distortion of the actual statistics and that there's a, a whole slew of studies and statistical evidence to demonstrate that both in Canada and the U.S., there's a disproportionate percentage of blacks and indigenous. And that's another issue that's that's arisen in, in, in the wake of the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests here is the indigenous communities once again starting to rally and say, well, hey, look, we've been talking about this for years Um you know, when are, when are things going to change? But blacks and indigenous have disproportionately been subjected to violence. So it's not just about killings. And it's not really an answer to say, well, more white people are killed um, or there's more white on white violence, quote unquote, compared to black on black violence. What they don't say, and this is, this is Marie Hennan's argument, is that the real 
stat, the real issue that needs to be discussed is that if you're black or if you're an indigenous man in particular, you're more likely than a white man to be harassed by the police, to be stopped and searched by the police, to be arrested, to be held for bail and incarcerated. And that these are the statistics that matter, that if you're black or if you're indigenous, you can't drive, you can't walk without living in fear of some state harassment or interference. And, you know, the other point that she makes, that's a, a perfectly valid one, is that the majority of interactions with police, they don't result in criminal charges or arrests. So in other words, they're never reported. There's never any documented evidence as to what occurred. So any individual who's pulled over and happens to be harassed by the police or, you know, illegally searched, if there are no charges that follow from that from that interaction or that altercation, very rarely is there any documented evidence that's brought to the police force in terms of what happened. And these are the real issues that have been completely neglected by a lot of the criticism that's been pushing back about white on white violence versus black on black violence. Anyway, so we, you know, I'll 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 put a, a note in the show in the show notes to uh, to Hennen's article, but it's a really, really compelling read. And it comes from someone who is expertly qualified to be speaking on the issue, given what she does for a living. Okay, that is a perfect segue, Ewan, because this, this goes nicely into what I wanted to talk about. So let's do that. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Okay, to go a little bit uh, along with what you said, Ewan, there's a huge uh, corporate PR angle to what's happening right now uh, with Black Lives Matter. And we, we talked about this uh, on a previous show, um, basically about some of the things like Nike and Adidas were doing um, to, to signal their support. Um, so, I mean, that is still progressing, but it's going a lot deeper than it used to go because it's turning out that slogans are not enough, that people want people who are in positions of power, as you were suggesting uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau, to actually do something about it. So the first key thing I wanted to to mention, and you may have seen this study, but the, the support of Black Lives Matter has shot up in terms of public opinion and support for the, the movement. So it moved uh, as much as it has in the last two years in a matter of days. I believe it's gone up 17 points uh, in just a couple of weeks in terms of support for the movement in the U.S., which is a, a very, very big change because you can think back to Colin Kaepernick, you know, taking a knee in the NFL was four years ago now, because he's been out of the NFL for three years. Uh, and it was, there was some division about that. Not everybody supported uh, his, his protest. And when you take a look at it today, things have changed so quickly that even Roger Goodell, the NFL uh, commissioner has come out and said that the NFL supports uh, Black Lives Matter and even a bit of a mea culpa on, uh, on, on its original position um, with Colin Kaepernick. But there's a lot of companies that are starting to to step forward because there is a lot of pressure on them. So I, I do think a lot of this comes from genuine support of Black Lives Matter. But I, I, I also think some of it is brands are coming under real pressure. So, I mean, a couple of examples. Uh, Jack Dorsey, who's the chief executive of Twitter and uh, Square, has decided to make Juneteenth, uh, you know, the Juneteenth holiday in the U.S., which is the 
the year that slavery was uh, abolished and bl- and slaves were emancipated uh, is 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 held on June nineteenth every year. So I mean, he's declared that that is now a a holiday at the company and staff will not be required to come into work um, on that day. Uh, Walmart as well has decided to stop locking up what they call multicultural hair and beauty products in display cases. Uh, you know, that's another another example. Um, and I think it's interesting to see where this pressure is going to go, because if you take a look at companies that just make up, you know, basic statements of support or even people that have come out, you know, in support of the movement on Twitter or Facebook, um, unless it's to some level of depth, there's some criticism, almost like these statements of support are being looked at under a microscope to make sure that they mean what they're saying in this pledge of support and that there will be some action to go along with it. And this is very different, you know, to past cases or past incidents of racism or, or, or death at the hands of a police officer, such as Ferguson, uh, you know, and, and an incidents before that. So, so it, it, it is interesting to see how this is going to go for companies. And it's also quite, it's a, it's a delicate time for them because it's easy to make a misstep. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really, it's the lip service comments that are really, frustrating um and somewhat infuriating to read the ones that that look like and read like a cash grab for for a business um which really is just not not the point and it's not the approach and i and i understand that there are those businesses that are rushing to be supportive um and and want to do their do their part and i think that that on some level is is admirable provided that their heart is in the right place um, but again, you read some of these statements and they're hollow and they're they're empty and they don't they they don't speak to the real substantive change that that needs to occur. So, you know, that, that that's great that you're going to issue a statement. But what is your company going to do? How are you going to alter your practices? How are you going to alter your your employment practices? Um, what sort of standards, what sort of policies are going to be revised? Are you going to introduce policies. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies still in, you know, and I, and I certainly speak with clients, um, from on, on this issue all the time that, that don't have anti-harassment, anti-discrimination policies, um, at, at their workplace. And, you know, and I, I think in, when you don't have that, you're really sending the wrong message to your employees, whether or not it's something you just haven't turned your mind to, um, the reality is, is that in the absence of something like that, it suggests that you don't take these issues seriously. So, you know, the, these are little things that companies can do that can hold some real sway. It also is a good way to protect employers because it means that if these issues arise, you have a clear policy framework in terms of how you're going to address these sorts of systemic discriminatory issues that continue to occur in Canada and North America and across the world. And I think that's why we've we've seen. Um, these protests spread to the extent that they have. Yeah. And, you know, this demand for, for real change. I mean, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, put out a statement talking about how, you know, this is something that, that Apple is going to try and address. And when you look at their uh, leadership webpage, uh, everyone is white. Most are men, with the exception of one female who is Chinese, who is managing director of Greater China. Everyone else on that executive team is white. And I mean, this isn't, I'm not sitting here trying to, to, 
you know, really shine a negative light on these companies. But I think they're going to have to do a lot more than just signal support. And something like this is really, I mean, especially a company like Apple, which does try and, you know, tout its its um, sort of CSR initiatives and its community and it's open and it participates in, in pride parades. You know, it, it's very active in social causes, but it's got to reflect that. Uh, in the company. And this has been a problem with tech in general, but especially at, at the leadership level. It's the same issue, you know, in the NFL. Um, you know, I heard the other day that, uh, you know, you know, black players have been playing in the NFL for decades now. So why is it that there are just, I, I think there's three executives that are black and one head coach. Don't hold me those numbers, but it's very, very, very small considering how many black players have played. And so, these are these are issues and, you know, addressing them is going to be difficult, but it, it's it's something that's I think people are really ready to look at and say, OK, it's time. It's time we do it. Yeah. Well, and, and also to recognize that this isn't something that's going to be fixed with a magic bullet overnight, right? That a company comes forward and says, OK, we're going to do X, Y and Z. I mean, this change when you when you want to affect real substantive change and address systemic issues these are not the sorts of things that can be fixed with a Band-Aid, um, you know, with one sort of single policy initiative by, by a company or by business. These are, these are changes and reforms that are going to have to occur over months and over years. So, look, I, I, think, it's, I think it's great that we're hopefully heading down that path, um, you know, and, and what I'm hopeful for is that we'll still be talking about these issues in six months and a year and two years and that companies will still be looking at these issues in six months and a year and two years because you're right you can't just completely um transform you know your executive or your board overnight you have to sit down and have a talk about well wait a minute why (laughs) let's look at this for a moment how come all of our executives are white males what can we do? What what haven't we been doing? And you start to introduce policies that can result in long term systemic uh, systemic change. I mean, real substantive change that that starts you know starts just with that initial conversation. But this isn't something that's just going to be fixed with a band aid overnight by companies issuing you know tweets and uh, we support. Black Lives Matter slogans. It's 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 not really the solution. That's where the rubber really hits the road, because I, I think for everyone that sees the video of what happened to George Floyd, it's 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 so easy to say that's wrong. All of us can see that's wrong. I mean, Republicans see it as wrong. The president sees it as wrong. I mean, it, it, it's it's not. It's not difficult to come out and say I'm against this. It's not difficult to come out and say I'm against racism either. But I think really implementing change, you're going to obviously be taking some some opportunities away from other people. Um, and I think some other people, when they have those opportunities taken away to try and make a better effort at diversity or more black representation in particular, that's going to ruffle feathers, that this is this is not going to be an easy process because to some degree, it is a zero-sum game. I mean, racism or, or, or lack of racism, rather, if it was completely, you know, if, if we were completely colorblind, you would think, okay, you know, everyone has a fair shot. It's not a zero sum game. You know, everybody's out there competing against each other. But the reality is it is, is it, it is a uh, zero sum game when you're talking about board positions and when you're talking about, 
executives or, or you know, a, a chief operating officer role or a, or, or a CEO role or something like that, as chief of strategy. There's only so many of these roles at companies. So if you are hiring a black person or another minority, it does mean someone else is not getting that job. And that's never easy for whoever doesn't get that job. And I think, you know, this is the the one area where people who oppose this kind of thing, because it's now I'm venturing towards sort of affirmative action, where they say somebody who is qualified should not be kept out of that job or should not be passed over just so a minority can be represented in the role. And it's interesting. I heard, um, I think it was last year I was listening to a podcast, and I don't even remember which one it was, where somebody said, yes, we're going to just have to deal with that. There are going to be some people, individuals, who lose, who lose out as we try and adjust this to make it more fair. Hopefully, it's temporary. Hopefully, we're going to go through some difficult years, and it could be a decade. It could be more than a decade, where we have to go in and tinker to try and make things more fair. And then, hopefully, it just becomes a much better and a much more level playing field. But the reality is there's going to be some people who lose out as a result of this effort. Well, and look, I mean, that's just such a hollow <laughs> argument. And I, I get really frustrated when I when I hear that because it presupposes that that white candidate um, was the better candidate objectively on paper. And what we know, and this is this is the very the very essence of systemic systemic entrenched racism is that you know a white interviewer interviewing a white candidate is going to relate to that individual in a way that he or she doesn't necessarily relate to a visible minority and therefore we start to see a blurring of you know criteria that is quote unquote objective such as you know marks or particular academic credentials and and um, qualities that are subjective so, you know, I, I think it's 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 a somewhat hollow argument to simply suggest that, well, we're going to give it to an individual that is is not as qualified because they're a visible minority. Again, it's it's a false premise. It assumes that the 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 white candidate historically has always been the better candidate and that's why they've gotten the job. And and that's just not that's just not the case. Um but the other thing I want I wanted to talk about, Cam, that that's been sort of interesting around um, around the protests is that we're starting to see, uh, and, and there's one, one example that's popped up here in Canada over the last week, but we're starting to see, um, a bit of a me too phenomenon. If you recall, you know, when the, the, the Weinstein story broke, there was just this flood of individuals that were coming forward with, um, you know, their own personal experience of, of examples of of harassment, of sexual harassment, of of assault, um, and naming names, and we're starting to see a similar phenomenon occur uh, in 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 this movement as well. There was one example recently this week with with Jessica Mulrooney, um, who is married to Ben Mulrooney, who of course was is the son of uh, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulrooney, and she she has a, a rather large social social media following she's also quite close friends with with Meghan Markle um and she was called out uh this week by a um a social media influencer who runs a product line um named Sasha Exeter and 
apparently, and, and again, I, I'm I, people can can check out the details on the story. I'm not entirely familiar with the back and forth, but I did want to raise it as, as an interesting example. But that Sasha alleges that Jessica Mulroney threatened her and threatened her livelihood, um, and she called her out and it, from 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 the position that. Um, that Mulrooney was was threatening Sasha on on the basis that she is a black woman and that there was a racialized element to Mulrooney's threat. And as you can imagine, uh, the pushback uh, was fast and furious. Mulrooney um, was dropped from a, a CTV program that she has, and I understand that subsequently there have been other sponsors that have um, have have refused to work with her going forward. And I don't think this is going to be an isolated case. I think we're going to start to see a lot more uh, of these examples. And again, I think if that results in some real substantive change, great. I think that's great, much like the Weinstein uh, the Weinstein case. Um, and and I and I hope that it does. I, I have to call you out a little bit because I had uh, there are a couple of problems I I thought with a couple of things that you said. So uh, one, you said that it's a misnomer to say that the black candidate isn't the better candidate. That the black candidate often is the the better candidate. Um, I I don't think we can say that. I, I think it's very difficult to say that because we're assuming something. And I think I think it's probably fair to to speculate that in some cases that was the case. And in other cases, it wasn't uh, because we don't have statistics on this, obviously. So I, I don't think every time a black person has applied for the same job as a white person, that they were the better candidate. I'm sure they were sometimes, but I, I don't want to automatically assume that. Um, but I, I think the, the, the racism is far more systemic than at the hiring level. I mean, this goes way back. I mean, there's there's fewer black students graduating from high school, fewer that are going into university, fewer that are, you know, graduating or getting master's degrees. And so when you get to the senior executive level, there are fewer there to choose from in many cases. So I, I think racism is an issue, especially at the executive level. But I think it's the it's the it's the sort of end result of all of the racism previous to that level that has impacted the choice that is being made at the end of that of that train that there's there's they've been held back at so many other points in their lives um and it's that that has to be addressed and this is where i'm saying we may need to you know make sure that that when there are you know and there there's very very many talented black people out there i'm not suggesting there's not but i'm saying numbers wise if you're looking at at university graduates and things like that so we have to make sure that they're given every opportunity. And I think it's okay if from time to time, even if they aren't the best candidate, that they are still given the opportunity. I think obviously they need to be, uh, you know, qualified enough to be in that role. But, but in order to change this, we have to change the entire cycle. We need to have many more, uh, you know, black people represented in senior roles in sports and in business and, you know, in many on Wall Street, in many other areas, because once we get that established, hopefully that does trickle down. And the next generation and the generation after that, they start to see, you know, that that, that, that there is not systems holding them back, which is what what is happening today. And I I don't know the the Mulroney case you talked about. I had not heard about that. Um, But it's 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 the same thing. Like I'm firmly in the court of Black Lives Matter. And I've done a lot of research, obviously, on Harvey Weinstein and everything with the Me Too movement. But I'm still not at the point where I'm saying believe women. Um, And I think I mean, you and I have both watched Bill Maher and I think he makes a good point, which is 
trust women, take women seriously. When they say something, take it seriously, investigate it. Because too many times we've just written them off or just ignored it. And I think when anyone makes an accusation anytime, it should be taken seriously, but it doesn't automatically mean that that accusation is true. And I think we need to draw a line there a little bit. I'm not suggesting it's not true, but I'm suggesting there should be an investigation and it should be taken seriously. Well, yeah, I mean, I think absolutes with regard to virtually any argument is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. But, you know, I I wanted to go back. I'm not I wasn't I wasn't saying that I think that the you know, the visible minority candidate is always going to be better qualified than the white candidate. My all the only point I'm trying to make is that the very nature of of discrimination, systemic discrimination, adverse discrimination in these contexts is that we rely on our own experience, on our own histories in the way that we approach any situation, including a job interview. And therefore, you're going to rely on those experiences in your perception, my perception of the world as a white male. And that's going to inform the way that I approach any interview and any interview candidate. And what I'm saying is that to come away and conclude that, you know, the the white candidate was objectively the better candidate may not necessarily be the case. We may be able to swap me out, replace me with, with you know, uh, one of my colleagues who may happen to be a woman or may happen to be a visible minority, and she can come to the complete opposite conclusion. Point being that there's a, a blurring of what is objectively the best candidate and what might actually be subjectively the best candidate, and that adverse discrimination informs these decisions. It informs the way that we come and, and reach these particular conclusions. And those are the issues that are very, very, very difficult to fix. And we have to be very aware of them. I mean, I think you and I have both over the years hired many people. I mean, I've, I've interviewed so many people. I don't even remember the number. It's so many. And yes, I, they're obviously, it, it's very hard to remove your own biases from, from an interview because like naturally I do like someone who is outgoing and cheerful and well-spoken and, you know, all of these things that I go, yes, I connect with you. I like you. This is good. And then I think, you know, there are people who are not that way who could be better at the job, you know, depending on what that job is. And I I do need to remove my own bias a little bit on on sort of personality type background. I don't think I've ever sort of discriminated on background, um, but personality type and things like that. And and be more aware of the way I'm reading a situation and that I'm reading it from my own I hate to use the word privilege, but like I'm, 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 I'm reading it from my own perch and sometimes my perch isn't the best way to look at a situation. Um, but I do want to say, because we'll, we'll, we'll have to move along here, but, um, for companies, I did want to say if I, if I was advising companies, especially on the communication side of it, um, number one, obviously, uh, a statement would have to go out. I think a lot of companies have done that. Those that haven't done it are under pressure to do it. But I think the statement does have to have some sort of substance. Um, I think there would have to be some sort of group set up in the workplace or some sort of committee to take a look at the issue, to take a look at hiring, to take a look at the executive team, uh, to, to, to look at HR and how it's structured. I think that there would have to be the announcement combined with some evidence of real work 
uh, about to be done or already started to be done uh, in that announcement for it to have any effect. And I do think in a year or two or three, if something happens again like this, uh, people are going to be far less far less forgiving uh, of companies. I think even today, they're not very forgiving of companies. But since this has happened, and with the with the huge change in support uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement, I think uh, it's pretty critical that, that action happen or companies are going to find themselves uh, in the crosshairs. Um, Ewan, I know you've probably got more on this too. I think we got to keep moving along because we're, we're, we're up against the clock a bit. So we'll head into uh, our next section right on the other side. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. There is so much to talk about this week. I, I have more notes here to go over. I can't even get to. But anyway, you and what's up? What's up on your side? Well, yeah, sort of sort of the same thing over here. I mean, what I wanted to talk about um, really could take up an, an entire episode, at least from a from a legal perspective. But um, we don't really have much time. But I, I do want to sort of address it because um, it was a story that didn't get a great deal of coverage this week. And I think it's um, really, really important. And that was on Thursday, President Trump signed an executive order uh, sanctioning members of the International Criminal Court. They're currently investigating U.S. troops um, and intelligence officials for possible war crimes during the war in Afghanistan. Um, I, I was somewhat surprised how little coverage this got in, in, in North American press. I had it, not heard this either first time. Yeah. Well, it, it's 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 a big deal, and I'm I'm not surprised that it it, it was. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if it was deliberately trying to fly under the radar. But I wanted to talk, talk about it a little bit in terms of the order. So the, this order would apply to any court staff um, that's involved in the investigation, and includes any of their family members. So the order would prevent these individuals from being able to visit the U.S. Uh, as well as prevent them from accessing any assets they may hold in U.S. financial institutions. Uh, you know, Mike Pompeo, the the Secre Secretary of State, he briefly addressed this issue um, with the press on Thursday. You know, he referred to the ICC as a as a kangaroo court, quote unquote, uh, and he went on to say that you know, and this was the the direct quote that. Um, I found in a, in a tweet that led me to, I think, one article sort of addressing it. I saw very, very few. But he said, we cannot allow ICC officials and their families to come to the United States to shop and travel and otherwise enjoy American freedoms as these same officials seek to prosecute the defender of those very freedoms. You know, look, and we don't have time to go into a history of the International Criminal Court. But I, I wanted to touch on it briefly because, first of all, this isn't the first time that the, the U.S. has taken aim at the International Criminal Court. So last year, Mike Pompeo, for example, he, he actually revoked the visa of the ICC's chief prosecutor uh, after she asked the ICC to open an investigation into alleged war crimes in, in Afghanistan. And this also, I mean, it's not even a partisan issue, Cam, so... The history of the ICC, um, I mean, it was established in 2002 
pursuant to uh, to a treaty known, known as the uh, the Rome Statute, and it was created for a very very specific purpose, and that's prosecuting war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide around the world. You'd think that that's a you know a, a, an issue that all governments would want to rally behind and and support. Um, now, a number of countries were signatories to the initial the initial treaty, and I want to talk about the distinction between being a signatory and then ultimately ratifying the treaty. So this was under Bill Clinton's administration and Bill Clinton in fact waited until the last possible day to sign on to the to the treaty and become a become a you know a, a member. But he never ratified the treaty. So there's 123 countries around the world camp that have ratified this um then there are four that are signatories that haven't ratified, the United States being one, and then the other three are Israel, the Sudan, and, and Russia. So George Bush comes to office. George Bush doesn't ratify it. And sorry, that's George W. Bush. Uh, Obama becomes becomes president. He doesn't ratify it. So again, this isn't, you know, this is not a partisan issue. It's not like let's beat up on Republicans or let's beat up on Democrats. Both sides have had opportunities to ratify this treaty and they've failed and refused to do so which of course begs the the obvious question well why well, you know why wouldn't the united states want to ratify it well you know the answer to that is really really simple if the united states were to ratify ratify the treaty the icc would have the ability to prosecute americans operating around the world notably military soldiers government officials um, and they are very, very, very reluctant to, to let that happen. Um, yeah, I understand why they would be reluctant. I, I, I am not as familiar with this case. I, I know a little bit uh, about the court. I mean, in general, like when you say it's, it's bipartisan, um, I, I get that. It's sort of like with, with uh, the U.S. complaining to uh, NATO in terms of, you know, Germany and France paying their, paying their fair share of what they're supposed to for their national defense. Th that is something that's been going on from president to president to president. And Trump carried on the tradition, but it's sort of it's handled differently when Trump does something, I feel like, in the media. But he's sort of been consistent with the, his predecessors on that issue. I... I you know, Ewan, I, I, I'm, I might not be as friendly of his, an ear to this topic. I don't know it well enough, so I, I'm really reluctant to speak. Other than, I know that in other instances, there's usually some some level of justified apprehension about something. Like, I do feel like the World Health Organization, for instance, has badly discredited itself with the information that it put out, with its ties with China, and you know, when the U.S. decided to, or when, when Trump announced that he would pull out of the WHO, I, I did not have a huge problem with that because I, I no longer trust the WHO myself based on its own behavior, especially in light of COVID-19. Now, I feel like if it were a different president, it would be probably an issue where people fell on either side of it. But I feel like because it was Donald Trump who did it, then it must be an awfully horrible thing that he did. Uh, and that's sort of where we are with anything that that Trump does. I'm trying to avoid falling into that. I disagree with the vast majority of what the president does, but on something like this, I I, I get it. On NATO, I get it as well. Um, you know, the US is paying, it's basically covering the costs of some very developed and wealthy countries, which doesn't particularly make much sense. Um, and then on an issue like this, I mean, I would have to go into it a bit more, but I can see why 
a country could hold two positions at the same time, being in favor of prosecuting people who, uh, you know, were, 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 were accused of war crimes, while at the same time not wanting to turn over sovereignty of this issue to an international organization. Because there's just so much evidence already that international organizations aren't always as they seem to be. I think the, the Human Rights Tribunal is such a good example of that. When you have Saudi Arabia and China and whatnot heading up human rights organizations, there's a problem. So I, I share the overall skepticism of some of these international organizations while not being entirely clear on this particular one. So I reserve the right to change my mind uh, if, I, if I get more background on this one. Um, but I mean, what does this mean then, Ewan, for, for, for the U.S. going forward? Because it's, it's, basic, it's not going to, to ratify this. And what's the fallout of that, not just for the U.S., but for, for, for other signatories and countries that ratified it? Well, yeah, I mean, there's sort of two separate issues, right? I mean, the ratification is is one issue, and and look, sure, I mean, are there are there political arguments on on both sides of that? Sure, I mean, uh, obviously, it's 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 an issue that Democrats and Republicans are are united on in some regard because you know both of both parties have had administrations in in the White House and have neglected to to ratify ratify the treaty, but I mean. This is this is sort of a further step. I mean, to suggest that you're going to penalize any individual who is working or involved in the investigation of war crimes in in, in the war in Afghanistan, and that you're going to prevent those individuals from coming to the United States and their families from coming to the United States or accessing their assets. I mean, that's that's kind of next level. And the concern, of course, is, is that it will have a have a chilling effect. I mean, the reality is, is that whether or not there were war crimes committed in Afghanistan, um, these investigations are important. They're important for the future of um, of war crimes and any genocide that may be committed in other regions around the world. So it's important that these investigations are 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 able to operate with some level of judicial independence carry out those investigations and reach whatever conclusions they reach to, I mean, really that should be in everybody's benefit. So to take such a strong stance to say that, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. We're not ratifying it. We don't recognize your, your investigation, but not only that, if you are working in this investigation, um, you know, you're banned effectively as are your family members. I, I, I don't know of, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with any other government taking such a position as this, um, and and to do so by way of executive order is um, it, it's it's scary. I, I think it's I think it's pretty scary. I do think sometimes people forget. Like I I, I do feel, geez, I don't want this show to become partisan. I do feel like sometimes on the left, there's a there is a lot of a bowing to what is right or what the consensus is, and. And you can see this even with COVID-19 in the U.S. It looks like Democrats are far more responsible about putting masks on, you know, whereas Republicans are just they don't want to be told what to do. And I think in a, a case like this and probably many other cases, I don't think the U.S. is aiming joining these organizations for, for the PR of it. I think they're thinking very clearly in their own interest. And I, I don't begrudge them that because. 
you're right about the fallout. It's chilling, but they intend to make it chilling because they 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 know, and we've seen pictures from Afghanistan. It, it, it there were very questionable behavior. There was very questionable behavior going on there. So of course, the United States doesn't want there to be any serious inquiries into this, and they want to scare people off it because it's not in the U.S.'s interest. So they have behaved completely logically if you're looking at it from that perspective, because I don't think the U.S. is too concerned about what other countries think, especially right now under this president. But just in general, I think the U.S. is kind of has a, has a history of operating that way. And it's going to take the steps that are in its own interest. And I think this is just a very clear example of that. And I think if the rest of us in Canada or over here in Hong Kong or elsewhere, if we hold the U.S. up as the country that will do the right thing, I think we're going to be disappointed more often than not. Um, I have a great deal of respect for the United States, but I, I, I think it has always basically operated, operated in this way. Well, yeah, but I mean, it, again, my, my concern is simply that it's one thing to say, A, we're not going to participate. B, we're not going to recognize or acknowledge what you're doing. It's something else entirely to say, we're, and we're going to go the extra step to punish any of those individuals who, who are actively involved and do recognize and do participate. And that's, it's that third step that is problematic for me. And that is... I think the Trump administration. So while the U.S. has operated in its own interest before, I do feel like it is more aggressive now. It's more open now. It's more. It's less concerned about the optics of its decisions than it's ever been. Um, and 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 maybe that's why why that third step was taken this time because it, it it is extreme. But I mean, we're looking at now the U.S. putting sanctions on, you know, Hong Kong government officials. I mean, these are people who oftentimes grew up in the West and were educated in the West and they're very, they're as American as any Asian person could be, um, you know, but there's sanctions coming there too. Um, a very interesting topic, you and I, I and it isn't going to be interesting to see what, what, what happens as a result of that. Um, there's a ton of stuff I have on the, the recommended list here. And you mentioned a, uh, column earlier. Uh, do you have anything else that you would like to, uh, like to share? Well, I'll I'll let you go ahead because I think uh, I, I've I've I spent a lot of time talking about Brianna's article, which again I really think um, people should read because it 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 just dispels a lot of a lot of the myths, a lot of the noise um, around around the Black Lives Matter movement, around the protests, around adverse and systemic discrimination in the police force. Um, and, and, it, you know, among, among citizens in, in general. So, um, I think that's, that's my piece. I'll leave it at that. And, uh, I'll, I'll pass it to you in terms of what you have to recommend. All right. Well, this is why I wish this show was like two hours long because any of these things could have been legitimate sections of the show that we could go into at some depth. Um, so the first, uh, is I think people are aware or maybe not that the, uh, the New York Times was embroiled in a bit of a controversy this week after it published an op-ed from Tom Cotton, who is a senator, uh, and it argued for deploying the U.S. military to basically clean up the streets of protesters. And uh, there was outrage at the fact that that was published. There is a sort of war, a civil war happening within journalism ranks that's gotten more intense over the last few years, and it boiled over on this case, and it led to... Uh, the uh, editorial page editor resigning and leaving the newspaper. Um, 
the New York Times has published its take on what happened, why this was published, where the flaws were, why it shouldn't have been published. Uh, and then some columnists have, have chimed in as well. So there's actually several articles on this subject. If you're interested in journalism or information and how it is being uh, created and distributed in this day of wokeness, uh, you want to take in some of these. And I think one of the best ones is from one of my favorite writers out there and has been for a long time. It's Roger Cohen. Uh, and he's got one called the outcry over both sides, journalism, moral clarity, or only one acceptable truth. Uh, so I think that's good. Second one. Uh, and I stumbled into this. Um, I had been reading something on gender dysphoria, uh, and about, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the transformation happening, um, for transgender people when JK Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter uh, novels was mentioned. And I guess she has been uh, kind of quietly signaling support uh, or, or rather opposition to the trans community on some certain levels, which I wasn't aware of. Uh, and then just a couple of days ago, like three days ago, she published a very long blog post on her website. Uh, which uh, says are her reasons for speaking out on sex and gender issues. Again, very interesting read, very, very intimate. Uh, she opens up a lot about her own background and some of the awful situations she's found herself in over time. Um, and even if you disagree with her findings, I do disagree with uh, some of the things that she said. I do think that it's honest and she is being open and I respect that a lot. I think it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting article. Um, the other one I wanted to mention, uh, Mark Marin has a podcast. He's probably one of the, um, most successful podcasters out there. After you talk about Joe Rogan, who's gone to Spotify, Mark Marin has been a comedian. Uh, he loves comedians. If you've ever listened to his show, he interviews comedians. He's had more than 900 shows. He's interviewed everyone except Jerry Seinfeld and uh, there are some websites dedicated to this, in fact, that Mark Marin just doesn't get Jerry Seinfeld's humor. Uh, he thinks he's too perfect. Uh, and Seinfeld feels like Mark Marin is just pretentious. Uh, and so they don't have a lot of respect for each other. At least that was the rumor. But uh, Jerry Seinfeld finally went on Mark Marin's podcast called WTF. And it was, it was, uh, at times a difficult listen because you can hear that there is some they are tense with each other and here's one clip from the show uh that i wanted to play this is when seinfeld was saying you know if you're funny you're funny that's really all there is to it there's nothing deeper than that when when mark maron kind of makes the case that you have to have some sort of trauma in your life or some anger or rage or hurt um that makes you a better comic but here's 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 a clip from the show you're funny if you're funny yeah. And you love to be funny. If you're uh, funny and you love to be funny. Yeah. You, there you go. So, okay. But so you never, you never question the psychology of funny. No, I reject that entire premise. Really? Oh yeah. Oh you, yeah. You, Look at my face. Yeah. You see how did I totally reject that? You're no, funny. If you're funny, period. But you, so there's no why. No. If there, and who, and if there is, who cares? That was one clip, and I, I have to tell you, there is another 
instance where it gets a little emotional and towards the end where it's a little confrontational and um they're two extremely different people and they both love comedy yet they both approach it from a completely different perspective uh and it's interesting to hear them have a discussion it's one thing i love about that podcast it's very 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 real oh i'm definitely going to check that out i um you know i i like i, I like Marin. i listen to his podcast Often, I think it's interesting that somebody would, anybody would refer refer to him as as pretentious. I mean, Mark Maron might be a lot of things, whether he's your cup of tea, cup of tea or not. Um, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would refer to him as pretentious. I think part of his charm is the is the complete opposite. He kind of he has a a real uncanny ability to come across as sort of an everyman and and relate to to all individuals that are on his show. Um, but I, I didn't know about the history with with Jerry Seinfeld. Um, I, I'm I'm definitely gonna definitely gonna check that one out. You know, while we mentioned that, there was one other show that was similar to this, but I think more emotional was uh, an interview with uh, Louis C.K. Right, Louis C.K. So, yeah, yeah. So Louis C.K. and uh, and and Marin, I guess, had been friends uh, like over a decade or maybe two ago, and had a falling out and uh, lost touch, but then reconnected for the podcast. And that was another difficult one to listen to um, because you could hear raw emotion on both sides. They were close. They're not now. I think they, they reconciled to some degree. So anyway, it is a good podcast. I do, uh, I do endorse it uh, just in general. Anything else you want, for, you want to add before we wrap up the show? One, one quick point because you, you talked about J.K. Rowling and um, there was a, a story that, that followed one of the one of the U.S. or sorry, excuse me, not the U.S. papers. One of the one of the British papers, and I'm I'm not sure which one it was. Um, interviewed her first husband, and in that blog post that you talked about that she posted, she speaks, as I understand it, I haven't read it, but quite candidly about the the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her first husband. Um, this particular paper interviewed the husband who was very, very clear that he is not in any way remorseful, um, for the abuse that he, he subjected her to. And there was a lot of pushback following the, the publication of that article. A lot of people, um, and, and, and a lot of people supportive of the Me Too movement commented that this is yet another way of setting back the movement because once again, um, were effectively giving a voice to to the abuser and compromising or potentially silencing the very women who want to come out and and talk about these issues um, because we're continuing to give a voice to 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 the abuser and that this is why women are reluctant to come forward because inevitably their accusers are given a platform that they don't often uh, deserve. So anyway, interesting. I saw a, a lot of really interesting stories in in response to to the publication of that article wow that is too bad because she says in the article you know that there are things to this day that that really sort of not give her flashbacks but startle her to a deep emotional level like a loud sound or a door slamming or something and so yeah i imagine it's very difficult if she ends up seeing him being interviewed and his comments being shared everywhere it's uh it wouldn't be easy um 
anyway, so I do, I do recommend uh, checking that out. Um, so that's it. We, we had an absolutely packed show this week. There was so much to go over. There's actually stuff that I've left on the cutting room floor here. Um, I guess we'll have to save it for next week. Um, like, uh, as always, please, uh, if you've got any questions for us, please tag us on social media. It's uh, PR Law Pod. P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Tell a friend if you love the show uh, and follow us on social media. We would love to see on there. We post on there fairly regularly, I think, at least every time a new show comes out. So we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And the account is PR Law Podcast. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Ewan. Good times. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, Kim. All right. We'll see you guys next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchy and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 